The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and live audio streaming at KUCI.org. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. you find out about our great VIP guests and shows at www.KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Mari's our host for Privacy Piracy, and she's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor. She's testified many times in the California legislature and U.S. Congress and hosted her own 90-minute PBS special called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. She's been featured on TV, 48 Hours, Dateline, CNN, O'Reilly, Montel, A&E, Channel, lots of other ones. So to learn more about Mari's vast expertise, please visit www.com identitytheft.org. So let's get started. Evening, Mari. Good evening. This is a real important issue that we're going to be talking about tonight. Just recently, everyone here at UCI has been worried about identity theft. We've had in the paper and the new university paper, as well as the Orange County Register and the LA Times, that there has been IRS fraud where over 90 graduate students tried to file tax returns And they couldn't file because some imposters had already filed in their name and received refunds. And we know that there's 7,000 graduate students that are exposed to this. So we don't know how many are going to end up being identity theft victims, but it is an increasing problem. And tonight we are so excited to have again for the third time Chris Hoofnigel with us. He is an he's an expert on privacy. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. He's one of my very favorite guests to have. I love to see him. I love to read the work that he's done. He is just incredible. So let me tell you about him now. He's been doing very exciting things. Chris J. Hoofnigel is a senior staff attorney to the Samuelson Law Technology and Public Policy Clinic and Senior Fellow with the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology. His focus is on consumer privacy law. From 2000 to 2006, he was Senior Counsel to the Electronic Privacy Information Center, which is the acronym is EPIC. He was Director of the organization's West Coast office. At EPIC, he did fabulous things. He concentrated on financial services privacy, telemarketing regulation, and consumer profiling. And I remember he testified many, many times in Congress, and his testimony is available at epic.org. Chris was also the author of an amicus brief in Remsburg versus DocuSearch, a case in which the Supreme Court of New Hampshire held that private investigators had a duty to exercise reasonable care toward individuals being investigated. Very important issue in which people, I think that was, that wasn't the Amy Boyer case, but that was related to it, that uh, Amy Boyer was killed when someone, but a young man who had his advances rejected by her many, many years before, found her social security number and 
actually went and killed her. Anyway, that case also held that individuals may bring common law privacy claims against investigators who acquire personal information through deception and and pretexting. He's also the author of many other amicus briefs and many other articles. He's a regular contributor to print, radio, and television, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and National Public Radio, and tons more. What we're going to talk about tonight, and which we had talked about previously, was he had done some great research now at Berkeley, and he had done an article called Identity Theft, Making the Known Unknowns Known, And he also did a follow-up on that, which we're going to talk about, and his most recent study, which we kind of talked about him doing last time he was on the show, Measuring Identity Theft at Banks. And that he did from getting a Freedom of Information Act request from the Federal Trade Commission. He is just incredible. I got some new ideas for him. Thank you for joining us from Northern California, Chris. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for hosting me. Well, you are terrific, and you have done some incredible things. So let's talk about privacy, what privacy research and scholarship you're doing at UC Berkeley. Well, I've been very lucky to affiliate with the University of California because it's given us a, a platform here to do a lot of interesting consumer privacy work. Um, we're doing a lot of work on polling, uh, so we're asking Californians what they understand to be their privacy rights under California law. Uh, We ask them questions that include, if you go to a website with a privacy policy, can that website sell your information without your permission? Uh, So we're trying to learn what people understand about privacy policies and opt-in and opt-out approaches. Um, We're doing a lot on online advertising. And uh, as you know, it's a, a regulatory issue that is very important in Washington, D.C. right now. Um, People are very concerned about how websites can track you across the web. And the Federal Trade Commission has issued new guidelines to create more privacy in that arena. And I'm also doing a lot of work on identity theft, and I I know we'll talk about that more. Uh, But what I've been trying to do on, on a very broad level is to create a consumer marketplace for bank safety. Uh, what I want to do is, is is have a system where consumers can choose banks based on their success in fighting identity theft um, uh, so that we literally have a marketplace, uh, a marketplace of competition for uh, stopping, uh, uh, for fighting fraud. And we, we, don't, we certainly don't have that yet. And uh, so that's been one of my major efforts over the last year. And I am so thrilled that you are doing that. But let me step back to a couple things that you're doing that I had a couple questions on. With the privacy policies, um, what are you finding out preliminarily about whether what people think that their information could be sold or not sold and opt in and out? What, what kinds of answers are you getting? I'm, I'm curious. Well, our first report based on our poll of Californians, so it's a, it's a statewide um, telephone poll. It's a representative of Californian adults. We, we called um, just under a thousand people for this poll. Um, deals with offline privacy issues. That is, the privacy rules that govern uh, your personal data when you go to the grocery store or when you participate in the sweepstakes. Um, and so we've been asking people questions like true or false. If I order a pizza for delivery, can the pizza delivery company sell my information without my permission? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And 
we ask nine different versions of that question in the offline context. Um, in addition to pizza delivery, we do uh, newspaper subscriptions, product warranty cards, product rebates. Um, y you know when you go to the store and, and the cashier asks you, what's your phone number when you, when you check right, out? Sure. We ask Californians about that. And generally what we're finding is that Californians believe falsely that privacy rules are in place that limit the sale of their information. So a clear majority believes that when they provide their phone number to the, to the cashier, the cashier can't sell the data. Right. Um, the same is true with a lot of these other contexts. Um, uh, even when it comes to uh, uh, you know, uh, practices that have been around for a while, consumers still think that the data can't be sold. A good example is product warranty cards. You know, you get those oh, yeah. you get those cards and when you know you when you buy electronics and other products and it, the warranty card says, please fill this out. It's very important that you complete it. And, you know, it asks you all these strange questions about what you read and how much, how much money you, you make. make. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and none of that has to be done. In fact, you don't even have to send in that card. And when we ask Californians about that, um, most Californians believe if they complete that card, the information cannot be sold. Exactly. And, and that's, that's what's so sad is that people think that if they give their information for one purpose, that it's not going to be used for another purpose. But that's not true. And, th and that information can be shared with all sorts of affiliates and, uh, and sold and all sorts of things. And, they, you know, do they understand the difference between opt-out and opt-in? Well, we didn't specifically ask whether people understood that difference. But what, what you're saying is a very important lesson when it comes to privacy. That is, when you, when you provide personal information in any type of commercial context, chances are there are no rules governing that information. And so it makes sense to, um, to ask, why are you using this information? Do you need it? Um, can I buy this product without telling you my phone number? Right. Um, because if you give them that number, um, for, for instance, in the, the, the example of giving the cashier your phone number, that actually allows them to start calling you, even if you're, not on, even if you're on the do not call list. There's, there's actually an exemption in the do not call list. Because you've given it to them. You've given it to them, and you've essentially said, go ahead and call me. And not only that, you know what they can do, Chris? They can do a reverse lookup so they can get your address and start harassing you with junk mail. We, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because that is one practice that we uh, ask about. Um, uh, we ask California consumers whether they realize that a company can use some information. So if, if a company collects a little bit of information from you, can they then go to other sources and buy more? Um, this, is, this is a practice known as enhancement. Right. Um, and um, most Californians think that that practice is illegal. <laughs> um, um, but it is not. And, and so by giving a store your phone number, there are reverse lookups that can give your home address and all sorts of other information about you. Wow. So that's great to get this information because then we can go to the legislature and see this is what people believe they're getting and they're not getting. So it's a deceptive practice and it's not transparent. And so maybe we need to clear that up. Yeah. Of course, some things we can't do, right? I mean, with, with Gramm-Leach-Bliliac, which says that Companies can sell our information 
to to affiliates without even us having any opportunity to opt out at all, right? There are some unfortunate standards at the federal level. And, um, you know, we are looking, we're at a, at a time where the, uh, dramatic change uh, could, could, uh, could occur. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of those laws are revisited, because it's interesting that you invoked Graham-Leach-Bliley, because the promise of Graham-Leach-Bliley is that if these banks could share information, and if you couldn't opt out, if these banks could just share all the information they wanted and, and merge and become bigger, um, they would offer products at a lower price, and they would have better services. And that, that promise never came to fruition. Um, uh, bank fees are higher than they've ever been in history, right. and services are down. Mm-hmm. So I really feel like Graham-Leach-Bliley is an example of where consumers were promised huge advantages from use of their personal information. And those promises um, were vague and ultimately were never delivered upon. No, and it just gave them an opportunity to, to buy and, and sell more of our information as well. Even our California Financial Privacy Act, which says that financial institutions can't sell our information to non-affiliates without our prior permission, people think that, that applies to everything, right? But it doesn't. Well, we haven't asked questions around that law. We've tried to ask questions that are simple and straightforward. Sure. Um, in, in part because, especially in the financial area, things become very murky uh, uh, very quickly. Um, so uh, we've mainly focused on, 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 you know, the basic question, you know, if you go to this type of store, let's say you order a pizza for delivery, can they sell your information? And um, it, that's another area where most Californians think that, the pizza company owes you some duty of confidentiality, and they don't. Right, right. Um, they're free to sell your information, and, and in fact, some pizza companies do sell um, their caller and delivery lists um, uh, to companies like LexisNexis and Merlin Information Services. Mm. And that, then they profile more, right? They, they collect even more information. So by the time you're done, you gave that information to your pizza delivery guy or whatever, and that gets sold and shared and other information. And you could end up with a profile of 30 pages that are all combined. And it's just from all these different entities that you've given that information to, right? Yeah, this, this is the one of the modern problems in information privacy. And one challenge that exists is getting individuals, getting uh, citizens to see this challenge. Because we all acutely feel certain privacy violations. So if our phone rings at the dinner hour, it's the telemarketer again. Well, we know what that is. We know when we're interrupted um, um, that, that, that our data has been sold, that someone has tried to contact us. The problem with uh, modern uh, privacy challenges is that the data is being sold among companies that you have no relationship with, and you have no perception of these um, data sales or and, and the use of this data. It's insidious and hidden, isn't it? It's totally hidden from us until something happens, and then we see some kind of profile somewhere. Well, it does offer consumer benefits. And um, so it, it, it is not, it's, it's not a bad thing in itself, but it can certainly be used for purposes that reduce consumer welfare. 
Um, and, and the New York Times has done a great series on this very issue where uh, marketers have created lists of elderly people. Um, and these lists will often be called elderly and impulsive. And they sell these lists to scammers, scam telemarketers, um, and, and other companies. And that's an example of where the trade in your personal information that's not that's opaque, uh, that, that's done you know for business purposes, generates um, uh, serious consumer harm. Right, right, right. Let's talk a little bit about that online advertising. Hasn't Google and and DoubleClick kind of gotten together? And and I understand Google is going to be doing some huge major changes in the next few months. And uh, it's going to take away, obviously, our chance to to look at um, what really are the best products, maybe because the the Google is going to be just making it very difficult for uh, companies that don't have a lot of money to show up on those first few pages of Google. So um, what, do you, what do you think about, what have you learned about the online advertising with your polling? Well, I should first mention that we're having a day-long conference on this issue on Friday, April 18th at UC Berkeley. It's a free conference, and it's called The Law and Business of Online Advertising. And Google and Microsoft will be there, and they're each giving a tutorial on their advertising systems to explain how they work, to explain how they make choices, and, and how they collect personal information. Um, so, uh, so we're spending a lot of time looking at those issues. One, one development that's particularly important is that the Federal Trade Commission has proposed guidelines for dealing with online advertising. And if you, as a member of a public, want to make comments on those uh, guidelines, you can at, at ftc.gov, um, and the comment period is still open. Um, so the, um, the, the long and short of it is, is that personal information is being used, and even non-personal non information is being used in some contexts, in order to pitch advertising profiles. And there are a lot of concerns over the collection of that information, how long it's kept, if it can be used for other purposes, or if it can be used in ways to reduce consumer welfare. And, you know, the obvious example is when you're put in the category of the impulsive um, or, or gullible. Um, and, and, and quite literally, marketing companies sell lists of people who are identified as gullible. Um, who are targeted for for scam advertising and experience like like young adults in their twenties, you know that that I think they're also very vulnerable, that they don't have the experience and things look good, and then they do this impulse buying. I can think of it because I've got kids in their twenties, and you know <laughs> that are my children, and I know what they're like. So <laughs> it's um, it's quite frightening, actually. When you think that they are so much is going on psychologically and using what they've learned about us to predict what we're going to do or to influence us to what we're going to do, it's it's uh, very futuristic. Only the future is now. The, the <laughs> other problem, you know, the the modern problem here is that as Americans, we have access to credit in a way that no one in history has ever had before. So making bad decisions can have permanent consequences, very long-lasting consequences. Um, uh, so 
because indiv- individuals can get into kind of a, a credit sp- spiral where they where they borrow and are in debt for a long time. The effects of of uh, the targeting are, are of, of genuine concern among cons- consumer advocates, and that's a lot of what we're going to talk about at this event on April 18th. So will that um, all be up on your website as well? To, to, will there be follow-up uh, reports from that, or what's going to happen so that people who can't attend can at least learn from that, that uh, seminar? We record all the sessions, and they're, they'll be available at bclt.berkeley. Perfect. Perfect. So I want to introduce you again. We are talking with one of my very favorite experts on privacy, consumer privacy, financial privacy. He's a professor. He's uh, He does wonderful writings. He's an author. We're talking with Chris Hufnigel, who is an attorney with the Samuelson Law, Technology, and Public Policy Clinic at the University of California up north in Berkeley, and we're sitting right here at UCI. Chris, since we're sitting on the campus of UCI and there's been so many problems with data breaches at UCLA, now UC Irvine, and and there has been, you know, up there by you as well, um, identity theft is a huge issue, and it's not going away. So tell us about uh, your your most recent update to your what you did for the Harvard Law Journal on identity theft making the known unknowns known. <laughs> That's tough to say too, yeah. by the way. Only only if you go to Harvard do you understand that. Yeah, and I didn't. <laughs> um, but you know that. The, the, the quote, actually, the title actually comes from the former Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, who, who you know, discussed the problem that there are things that we know we don't know about. And I think identity theft is one where uh, the public reporting system and the surveys that are done to measure the problem are flawed in a number of ways. And this is no criticism of the people who are who are trying to measure these problems, um, but the identity theft risks are uh, evolving quickly, um, and it's come to the point where there are forms of identity theft that that, that can be engaged in where, where um, individuals never find out about them. And that includes banks. Oftentimes, banks never even realize that they've been swindled. Um, that's, where, that's where we've gone in identity theft. And so uh, basically what I've argued... Or they don't find out for a really long time. I know you talk about synthetic identity theft, and and that's obviously when a fraudster uses a variety of identifiers of different people and then creates a new identity. The problem that I see with synthetic identity theft as one who deals directly with victims is that eventually, and much later often, the person whose social security number was used... All right, that social security number becomes the one that the the person who owns that or has that is the one who eventually becomes the identity theft victim. Even if you use the name, you know, Chris Chris Hoofnagel, but if you're using Lloyd Boshaw's social security number, it's Lloyd that's going to be the one that is going to be hurt the most. And the fact that this crime can occur, the fact that you could take my name and Lloyd's social security number and apply for credit and get credit cards is a major problem. Exactly. And 
and so what what this article is about and a lot of what my other work is about is trying to figure out is trying to to change the public conversation around identity theft so that it focuses on banks and um and so that it asks the question why does synthetic identity theft exist why is it that one could take information that's just wrong uh information that doesn't match and still get credit cards exactly um and i I think I know the answer to uh, to that question, and um, and one of my current projects is, is figuring is, is testing the hypothesis, testing to see uh, whether or not we're right about that. Um, but the, the larger point here is that identity theft isn't a bad thing that happens to good people. It is a cost of doing business. And until we understand that banks can actually control how much identity theft they have uh, through their policies and procedures, um, they're going to pass the cost of this crime off onto victims. And they want to blame the victim often as well. And I deal with this all the time with banks and with victims. And I think what we're seeing like in the news and, and even the Federal Trade Commission, it's like, okay, we have to educate consumers so they won't become victims. And I don't care how much education you have, how careful you are with your social security number, how careful you are to opt out and not share information. Your information, as you were saying before, Chris, everybody's gathering that information. So you could, you could almost live as a hermit and yet your sensitive information is in all sorts of databases, and whether it's used by a dirty insider or whether uh, someone just finds it at your doctor's office or in the garbage or somehow does a security breach like the ones that we've had at the UC campuses, it doesn't matter. If the financial industry, if the companies themselves or the agencies themselves were careful about looking at who they're extending this credit to before they did it, even if they have a social security number, there wouldn't be a victim, right? It just, it's, it just is, it's not that difficult, actually. There's, there's clearly some cases of identity theft that could be prevented if banks exercised more due diligence um, in granting credit. And that it's, we're not talking about brain surgery here. We're talking about things like matching the date of birth to the name, matching the social security to, number to the name. Um, and, and you know what, Chris, I have to stop you. This is the thing that drives me the most crazy. If I'm applying for credit in your name, Chris, and, and I don't use, you know, Christopher, I'm just Chris Hoofnigel, okay? As a woman, I could do this even. And I get your social security number, and if I apply for credit, at an address in Southern California, and you clearly live at an address in Northern California, when I apply for credit, the creditor is going to pull that credit report, right? And they're going to see that there's an address in Southern California, and, an ad- you know, uh, they're going to see that there's an address in Northern California, and yet I'm in Southern California applying at an address down here. That should be enough for them to call or at least, at the very least, send a postcard to both addresses and say, before we issue this credit card, is this truly the new address? And the good news is, is that the red flag rules that are coming out this fall right. that, that are, are going to affect or right. will be enforceable this fall. Yeah, yeah. 
um, will speak to some of these problems. Um, but at the but same it's not as tight as, as, as that. Like with, with the postal inspector, that's what they've adopted. They will, when somebody tries to change an address, they, first tra- they, they actually send a postcard to both the old and new address before they'll, they'll change uh, where they're sending the mail. Did you know that? Oh, yeah. And, and, and that's one, of, uh, one practice that a bank can use to comply with red flag the red flag rules, but the rules give banks such discretion. Yes. I think the problem that we've found is that giving them this discretion has led them to take on some really bad practices. Right. They take the easy way out. They don't want to do that postcard, and they don't want to do the telephone call. It gives them too many choices, which are not effective means. And and so part of what I I argue in this article is that we ultimately won't know whether or not the red flag rules were effective unless we collect better statistics on identity theft. Um, and if, if we had better statistics, statistics on the crime, if banks, were, if banks themselves had to report um, on incidents, just you know, raw statistics on, on, on uh, their levels of fraud, we'd be able to say whether or not the red flag rules were effective whether or not they need to be tightened, as you've suggested, um, or whether they're just right. Um, but we won't know, and uh, I, I know what's going to happen. Uh, the red flag rules are going to pass. Identity theft will, will re- continue to be a problem. But for the next three or four years, the banking industry will say, don't, don't bother us. We just implemented red flag. Right. You haven't given red flag a chance. Right. Um, so uh, that's my prediction. It's <laughs> well, right, yeah. And, and, and they'll, tr- they'll, try, they'll try that argument, but eventually um, people will say, wait a minute, uh, you've had enough time to do this, and we need, to, we need to look at this problem more seriously. Chris, you said that you had um, a hypothesis of why identity theft is increasing and that you're testing it. So you want to share that with us, or is that the secret that I have to have you back next year to tell us? No, I'm happy to talk about it. And it's not exactly that identity theft is, is increasing. I, I can't tell either way. Um, it, it, it's basically, it's, it's, it's a guess at, at why synthetic identity theft exists. And so, synthet, I mean, just as a reminder, synthetic identity theft is where you use personal information from several different people or just wholly made up information in order to um, um, obtain uh, credit accounts. Um, I think that the banks are looking only at the social security number and date of birth in order to authenticate customers. Or not even the date of birth, maybe just just the social security number, because sometimes, remember, we have babies who are becoming victims of identity theft. So they're obviously not looking at the birth if, if it's, I mean, looking at the birth uh, certificate or the birth date if, it, if the birth date of the Social Security number is 2007. Well, the, 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 the banking industry assures regulators that it doesn't just look at the SSN. So in this case, it could be looking at name or other information when it comes to uh, toddler uh, identity theft. But I think with respect to a lot of these synthetic cases, they're looking just at the date of birth and the Social Security number. And since Social Security numbers are l- roughly tied to, the, to um, um, uh, a date of birth, it's, it's actually date of issuance, um, 
if, if those numbers match up, um, I, I think they're they're given the green light. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the really the only thing that can explain the fact. Um, uh, I'll just give a recent case as an example. In the Rose case, where uh, two men got together, they got 250 credit cards from 15 different banks using fake names but real Social Security numbers um, and um, drop boxes, you know, P.O. boxes. Sure, yeah. Um, it, 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 I mean, it, it basically means that name isn't being used for authentication, nor is address. So I think they're really just looking at the Social Security number and date of birth. Yeah, and I've been saying to them for years, when I was a victim back in 1996, I said, the address is the key. And the reason I say the address is the key is because a, a someone who tries to create a new account in your name has to change the address to be able to get those cards. If they use your address, they have to sneak around and try and steal from your mailbox, and it's too, it's too iffy whether they can do it or not. So they have to change the address. So that is really the key. If the address is changed, that is really the biggest red flag in my view because that's everyone who becomes victims of identity theft find out that, gee, wait a minute, I, I live in California. I don't live in Virginia. Or I don't, I don't live in Northern California. I live in Central California. So that ha- always seems to be the biggest red flag that is totally ignored. And there are a number of cases that, that provide anecdotal evidence for your argument here. Um, there have been a number of cases where, for instance, someone will apply for credit in Nevada using the personal information of someone who lives in Puerto Rico, and um, they'll still get the credit card. And, you know, that type of – so we're not talking about just the difference between Northern and Southern California. Right. We're, we're talking about, you know, not being on the continent. Right. Um, and, and still getting uh, 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 credit in another person's name. Uh, so I – I, I still think that a lot of a lot of these problems can be addressed without major interventions, with with pretty simple approaches, um, uh, and it would make a big difference in victims' lives. Yeah, I mean, if you know that before a company will issue a credit card to a new potential credit holder, right? They will look at that credit report because they want to see if that person is credit worthy. They don't want to issue credit to someone who isn't credit worthy. So as soon as they get that credit report, it seems to me, besides checking out a name, which they should be checking out a name, and you said that often it doesn't match, the Social Security and the name must match, they, the address should match, the date of birth should match, right? And, 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 and they can look at that credit header information and look to see, is it an exact match? If it's not an exact match, don't issue the credit till you verify you know what the you'll you'll love this, Chris. I have talked about this with uh, creditors many many times. You know what they tell me? They go, Mari, do you know what a um, you know mobile mobile society we have? Do you know that half the people move every year or something like that? They give me this oh, yeah. crazy thing, and, and, and they're <laughs> right about that. A, a huge number of people move every year. Yeah. So what? So so what does it take? To the a phone number is on your credit report. What does it take to call somebody? Yeah, and unfortunately, um, you know, this is another area where the the banks really got by with with 
something that's unfair is, 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 is what you've mentioned is the idea is why don't they call you? Well, the fraud alert is a intervention where, you know, anybody can call up and file a fraud al alert, and you can tell the consumer reporting agency that if, if anybody shows up and wants credit in my name, call me. Call me on my cell phone. Right. Um, the problem is, is that the way the law is written, yes. the retailer does not have to follow that warning. Um, the, the, they don't have to follow that request. The and what's cr crummy about that whole thing is this, is that when we passed FACT, it only allowed you to put a fraud alert on your credit profile for three months and, unless you provide a police report and then you can get it for seven years. Or you have to call every three months and, and you know, uh, renew that credit consumer alert. The problem is, you're right, there's no teeth. If if I was really victimized and I have a fraud alert on my credit report that says don't issue credit without calling me first at my cell number and this is it, um, and, and the creditor actually issues credit, you know, I can't sue them. There's no private right of action. Well, um, there is a recent case in the Western District of Tennessee where uh, under Tennessee law, um, an identity theft victim uh, was able to sue a credit card company for negligently issuing a card. Um, and that case settled out of court. Uh, but, but there is a, a, at least one decision out there. But you're right. But, it, but was, it, was there a fraud alert on that uh, credit report? No fraud alert. Okay. Um, okay. But there were other indicia of fraud that right. were obvious. Um, and, and, in fact... I have some of the documents from that case. The um, the credit card company wrote down in one of its internal memos that they did no verification, and no verification appeared in bold letters. Great. That was their words. Um, uh, so they ended up giving a credit card to an imposter in the name of a young man who didn't even have a job. Mm. Um, so it so. The, a, a, a lot of these practices. I mean, when I look around at some of these practices, they're not—they're not that tough to crack. But tell me, why do you think FACTA requires a police report? Well, I remember at the time they wanted a, an identity theft report that came from either local, state, or a federal agency, which could be the postal inspector, which could be the DMV. You know, wherever you can get a report to, to verify that indeed you are a victim. And the reason is, is because they did not want people to just say, take this off my credit report if they were just malingerers. That's my understanding. Is that yours? Well, I'm not, I've never really understood that. Okay, so that was the reason why, is that because if anybody could put a fraud alert on their credit report and get an extended alert, um, then without a police report, then people could really basically say, this isn't mine, take it off, you have 30 days to take it off. So that's, that was the reason why, is to prove that they really were a victim because the credit reporting agencies were telling us, well, people pretend to be victims so that we'll clear off their credit profile. So they wanted some in, indicia to show that there was some crime committed against the victim so that the victim then would have the threshold to be able to get the fraud uh, blocked from their credit report within 30 days. It made sense to me. Okay, uh, it just seems to me to be a, a big barrier. And and you know, in, in, in earlier work, I wrote about 
the problem that because it's so easy, it, because banks grant credit cards so easily, I mean, even there are even dogs that have obtained yes. credit cards. Yes. Um, I- there's really no remedy. There's really no shield for identity theft aside from credit freeze. Right. And, and credit freeze is a good intervention for some people, but not for others. And let's explain for our audience who may not know what a credit freeze is, because we explained a, a, a fraud alert, and the credit freeze is different. In order to get a credit freeze, you must write to the credit bureaus. And if you're in a state like California, actually, I think now all this, uh, most states now, you still can do this through the credit bureaus. You can pay ten dollars to each credit bureau, write them a letter, and say you want to place a credit freeze on your credit profile, which means that no company can issue new credit, can even get your credit report without you providing a password. So that's what the credit freeze is. And then to thaw it, you have to pay another $10 to each of the credit bureaus to thaw it. The only time it's free is if you're a victim. So I just wanted people to understand what that was. And, yeah, that's a that's a very good explanation. And you know, the the basic problem is is that if you need access to credit, you first need to thaw your file. Right. And in some states, that can take a little bit of time, and it costs ten dollars uh, for for each consumer reporting agency that thaws for you. Um, so, and for in instance, our state, it's it's ten dollars, and it takes three days. Yes. So, so you're applying for a job, or if you need that extra credit card um, for whatever reason, uh, and you really need it quick. Um, uh, you don't want to be waiting around for your thaw. So, uh, so consumers are really in a difficult situation. They have this option to file a, a fraud alert, which is not always effective and expires after 90 days, or they really have to go in with a sledgehammer and freeze their file, which can prevent them from uh, getting opportunities that could really help them. Yeah, and I think that's that is another law that should be changed because before we got FACTA, actually, when I was a victim back in 1996, I could keep a fraud alert on for more than you know. After I had been a victim and even cleaned it up, I was able to keep a fraud alert on my file for you know for a, for a long time, you know, for like 10 years, and and that was without. Of course, I had already proven that I had been been a victim, but it seems to me everyone should be able to put a fraud alert on their credit report, don't issue credit without calling me first, and that there should be actual remedies for people when an account is issued without someone checking, don't you think? Yeah, in fact, I, I wrote about this in a 2003 article on, on credit freeze, basically saying that that the the standard it, it's the legal standard when um, when a fraud alert is in place requires the, the the credit issuer to exercise reasonable care in verifying your identity, and I, I basically argued in this article years ago that that should be the default standard. Um, and in fact, if that isn't the standard, it suggests that creditors don't have to exercise reasonable care. Uh, that, I'm sorry, that's a bit confusing, but basically the heightened standard is really what should be normal, what should be the normal standard. Um, and it, if, if we were able to make that change, we might be in a more comfortable space 
with respect to identity theft. Yeah, and that's so, I mean, let's bring it down to reality. We're sitting here on this campus at the University of California, Irvine, there's 7,000 graduate students whose sensitive information was acquired, okay, by unauthorized persons. Uh, there's already been tax returns that have, refunds that have gone to fraudsters. We don't know what else is going to happen to these 7,000 graduate students. And if you're listening to this, you know, you need to put a fraud alert on you and you need to be vigilant. And, you know, the other thing is, is that we have this one call fraud alert that when you call one of the credit bureaus, Equifax, TransUnion, or Experian, you're told you only need to call us and we'll contact the other two. And it only works 40% of the time because Debix did that study and found that because of the different systems, they're not all the same system, that depending on what you enter, it may not actually set the fraud alert on the other two uh, bureaus. So it's it's crazy. It's, and and what the, the irony here is that these companies have figured out very precisely how to do things right when it's in their commercial interest. They figured out very precisely um, how to sell pre-screened offers of credit, how to, you know, how to, how to basically sell credit card offers to you, et cetera. Um, but this is an area where uh, law is needed to give the proper incentives to protect individuals against abuses. Yeah, getting back to your um, the first article that we were talking about, that identity theft making the known unknowns known, and you were talking about in there, you suggested that the various companies that they have a duty to report. And you talked about Dan Solove, who was also on our show, saying that he didn't think that would work. I don't think that will work in that um, I just, I, they don't want to spend the money or the time on it. You know, I mean, you talk to the people who, um, you know, work in their fraud departments and they don't have enough resources to deal with the fraud. They don't even want to tell law enforcement what they know because it'll take time and they're ready to move on. They've already lost money. The company's already lost money. They don't have any incentive. It, it, and that's why I think we need to mandate reporting. We, you know, we had um, a, another area where we've mandated reporting security breaches, and the changes have been incredible. Um, uh, companies are, in, are investing a lot more in information security. Um, they actually have metrics to to say whether or not they're doing a good job on on consumer security now. Um, and so this idea for identity theft reporting comes out of the same principle that if we simply had to track the the statistics, um, uh, companies would start competing with each other, and um, uh, preventing identity theft would be really a, would be a high priority because no one would want to be on the wor- on the list of of, of the worst institutions for identity theft. And and I think it's a noble uh, suggestion, and I think it's a little bit harder to hide a security breach of, you know, a million people or, you know, 4.1 million people like Citibank had or 1.5 million like Bank of America had. I think it's harder to actually hide those than it is to hide individual victims who call because they could say, oh, we don't know if they're really a victim. Let's let that one go. Maybe they're just a malingerer. Let's, let's, not, uh, let's not count that one. I'm, that's, maybe I'm a cynic, but I... <laughs> no, those, are, 
Those are very good points. I, and, and to a certain extent, I agree with you. But as you require um, reporting, it tightens things up. And um, uh, no one wants to get caught cooking the books. And uh, they'll, they'll, of course, there'll be a certain level of cheating. Um, some institutions will, will do exactly what you're saying. Uh, but over time, we, we get a better picture. I, I think one of, the, one of the benefits of identity theft reporting is that it would help banks themselves recognize fraud, because there are lots of instances where banks cannot tell whether an account holder is a real person or not, whether they're a real person and they're just a, down on their luck, can't pay the bill, or whether they're an imposter. Um, and so I don't think the banks themselves understand their true exposure to the crime. And I think you're 100% right. And I, it's funny because I have done a lot of programs with inside um, investigators for companies, and they themselves have told me that they have, when they're, when they're not you know, really investigating these, they often label it as just a bad debt, and then it doesn't look as bad for their stockholders. It doesn't look as bad for the company. So they actually classify it as bad debt and, you know, get rid of it or sell it to collections, and then, of course, the victim has to deal with the collection agency. And so that's that's a perfect example of the type of externalities that I'm, I'm trying to address at Berkeley. Of, of the fact that it could be um, um, easier for the bank to misclassify it and, and, and therefore um, push it back off to the consumer um, where it gets investigated as identity theft. And, and then, as you mentioned earlier, whoever's Social Security number is attached to that file starts to get calls. Right. And so what I'm trying to do is to, is to figure out how we can align incentives um, uh, to prevent that type of uh, thing from occurring. You know, the last time you were on the show, we talked about this because you had just come out with the first study and now you've done a subsequent with that. And then you also um, came out with something else. You remember we talked last time about how the fact that the Federal Trade Commission gets complaints and you ran with it like, uh, you know, at light speed and got a Freedom of Information Act, and you did this measuring identity theft at top banks. Let's talk about that study because I think that was incredibly insightful. So let's talk about what you did because I think that, you know, since the who better to to provide the um, the evidence of what banks are doing than the victims themselves, right? Well, you know, and you're being very modest. This is this is actually your idea. I've been tr- I've been trying to figure out for a long time how to um, how to get better statistics statistics on identity theft. And you said, well, well, why don't you just ask the Federal Trade Commission? They have a database of them. And so, the very the, the very next day, I filed a Freedom of Information Act request to get. Do you that know database. how excited I was when you did that? <laughs> I can't even tell you because, you know, I just was like, okay, because I'd been asking them nicely to, you know, how they do these reports every year, and I'd been asking them very nicely to please also make that available publicly, and they kept saying, well, Mari, you know, our job is to kind of negotiate with them to do the right thing. And remember, I told you that, and I was so aggravated, and I just. I didn't have the the energy or whatever to do the the Freedom of Information Act, and 
you you have done that so many times and you just ran with it so i you know i'm just excited that we were able to brainstorm because i got some other ideas for you today too but i know you're going to run with them also so but no that was great so let's talk about that because i thought that really i have been sending that to everybody that i know and sending it to the media and talking about it in radio shows myself so let's talk about what you did because i thought it was great well, thanks very much. Basically, what I did, and you know, I, I need to start out with some warnings that, that this is a very kind of rough, rough measurement, um, um, and I'm, I have a, a limited confidence in its findings. But basically, what I did is I took complaints from the Federal Trade Commission, and I put them in order by the name of the institution where their identity was stolen. So, for instance, um, a consumer could file a complaint, and they could say a credit card was issued in my name. And um, the form would ask them, what bank issued the card in your name? And the consumer would type in Capital One or Citibank or Bank of America. And so I added all of those together. There were 46,000 records. Um, and then uh, sorted them and, 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 and tried to make a ranking um, according to these complaints of banks uh, based on their ability to prevent identity theft. And the, the first version was very rough. The second one is, is better, but, um, and I actually think the second one does provide some good advice to consumers on which banks to avoid and which credit card companies to use. Let, let's talk about what you found out, which, which were the banks that actually... Uh, issued the most fraud accounts, and based on, and, and we have to talk about the fact that you you allocated, you compared for, um, you know, you allocated according to size as well. Oh yeah, the, the so I have a number, I have an, an, a, a total number of complaints filed, and then that number is divided by um, a number of other statistics um, that that denote bank size. So, for instance. Um, I compare it to credit card issuers by volume, um, um, to banks by the number of accounts they have, to banks by the amount of money the bank has, and to banks based on um, uh, um, the number of retail or consumer accounts they have. And one of the things that's interesting is that we ran a correlation analysis on, uh, which was essentially means that we tried to figure out what what facts are most likely to be associated with a high risk of fraud? And every single measure came back to size of the institution. The larger the institution, the more likely um, um, there is risk of identity theft at that institution. And that's probably because they're so busy trying to issue credit and they don't have the time to really be that customer-oriented or something. I don't know. What did you think was the reason for that? I don't know the reason. And there, there's a lot of explanations. One basic explanation is that larger banks might have less sophisticated customers. Um, it, another is, is that larger banks uh, um, are the target of more attacks simply because of their size. Hmm. So, so, you know, Bank of America is the largest bank in, in, um, in the U.S., and it ranks very highly for fraud levels. Um, but what's, in, what's really interesting, I think what, what's the most interesting, is who performs well. Um, and among credit card issuers, American Express 
clearly has lower rates of fraud than other credit card issuers. And you know what? They're the best about cleaning it up, too. They don't give you a hard time at all. Well, they were literally the lowest on the chart, and they're substantially lower than any other bank on the list. Um, and the, the other bank that, that did very well overall, both in deposits but also in credit card issuance, is USAA, which is a nonprofit bank. Um, so those two institutions did very well. And just among normal savings banks, two that did very well were ING Bank and World Savings Bank. ING Bank, and for the period of my sample, only had one a single complaint of identity theft um, over three months. And they're a very large bank. Um, Of course, not as big as Bank of America, but, you know, this is is not a bank to sneeze at. And um, uh, they have a very low rate of fraud compared to the competitors. Wow. You know, Lloyd says that we don't have a lot of time, but I wanted to give you some thoughts. When you had written in your other study about making the unknown known, um, you know, you talked about maybe having uh, the the credit reporting agencies report, and you kind of dismissed that. But you know what? The credit reporting agencies probably get a lot more reports than the Federal Trade Commission and the police, even. So I I think if there's any way that you can get the credit reporting agencies to give you some of that information, and we'll talk about it later because Lloyd's giving me the high sign, I think they really have a duty to report. And I think under the uh, FACTA, they have some obligations to report to Congress. So maybe that would be something for you to look into. I'll, I'll definitely think about it. Okay, Lloyd says it's time to go. Thank you so much, Chris. We're going to have you back again. We have to. You're wonderful. Well, thanks for your kind words. And I'm going to be sending you some emails about some other ideas. So I know you'll run with it, and you will just be fantastic. So thank you so much for joining us. Okay. We'll talk to you soon. You've been You've been listening to Chris Hoofnagel, who is a senior staff attorney at Berkeley Center for Law and Technology. And you can go and learn more at the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology and go to their website and find out more information. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI. Thank you so much. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.